Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing school reopening amid the COVID-19 pandemic. To examine this are IDSA board members, Dr. Wendy Armstrong of Emory University and Dr. Tina Tan with Northwestern University. Also bringing a very important angle to the discussion is Noelle Ellerson Ng, the Associate Executive Director of Advocacy and Governance with the School Superintendents Association. Thank you all for being here. Dr. Tan, I'd like to start with you. So far, it appears that children are less likely to become seriously ill from COVID-19. But what do we know so far about how effectively children transmit COVID-19 to adults? Anyone can be infected with COVID-19. However, children tend to either have no symptoms or mild symptoms when they are infected. However, asymptomatic children can transmit the virus. And studies seem to indicate that younger children under 10 years of age are less effective transmitters of the COVID-19 virus and infrequently serve as the index case in COVID-19 family clusters. However, children 10 years of age and older have similar transmission kinetics to adults and are as likely to transmit to others in the household or the community similar to what we see in adults. I think um, this brings up a major factor that needs to be considered um, before schools consider reopening, and that is the level of COVID-19 infection that is occurring in the community. If the level is high, it would not be a good idea for schools to reopen in, the, in that particular community at that time. And it would also be good to know what the level of infection is in children that are 10 years of age and older because we know that they are able to be more effective transmitters of the COVID-19 virus. Thank you for your insights, Dr. Tan. Ms. Ng, moving on to you now. Physical distancing, face coverings, and hand hygiene are integral in fostering safe school reopening. What then are the challenges of implementing these strategies in the school setting? I think the first challenge of even thinking about implementing these strategies is getting the broader community and our political leaders to understand that it's an obstacle in and of itself to get to a position where we're able to implement these strategies safely. And this goes back to a conversation that I know Dr. Tan and Dr. Armstrong have been having about how making sure that we're being critical to in open schools only when the schools can be open safely and that typically correlates to understanding and being aware of the viral hotspots and knowing what your community threat of COVID is. And so once you're afforded what we could passively say is the privilege of being able to open responsibly and safely, then these issues of physical distancing, face coverings, and hand, hand hygiene come into play. Physical distancing Last time I checked, the nation's schools weren't sitting on half of a school building that they weren't using in case there was a pandemic and they suddenly needed to space their children six feet apart. So we absolutely are running into a square footage issue. Uh, while every school district likely does want to enroll 100% of their students 100% of the time, you're not going to be able to do that with reasonable compliance with the CDC guidance and other uh, state and local health agency guidance and good rulings. Particularly among our younger students too, face coverings and hand hygiene, these are habits that need to be developed and reinforced and they need to be learned. And it's just, 
especially with those younger kids going against everything we know about these children who rely on social interaction and show their love and affection by coughing in your face and rubbing their hands on you and constant physical interaction. The challenges here are going to be largely around how you write your policy, how you empower your policy to be implemented at different levels, both at the school level by the principals and vice principals, as well as how you empower teachers and then reinforce their implementation of the policy. You wanna have community buy into these policies too. People are better about implementing things that they have a hand in helping to create. So community buy and community support will get you better traction to when it comes to having broader compliance and more readily community-wide compliance with the ideas of, yes, every hour the kids are going to wash their hands. And when the child comes home and says, mommy, Miss Ellerson Ng made me wash my hands every hour, that's where the mom or the parent or the guardian steps in and says, yes, they do, because that's what we do as responsible citizens to help ensure that you stay safe and that you're making sure that you help your friends stay safe. Physical distancing, it's about having enough physical space, being able to creatively think about other areas of buildings that might not be used because we can't aggregate in groups. Maybe you can repurpose the library or the cafeteria or the gymnasium or outdoor space to address physical learning needs. This is where communities could also come together if there are other community buildings because again, school districts aren't usually sitting on significant amounts of unused space. This is where you might be able to look within your community for other unused buildings or spaces that might be quickly converted into safe environments where children can be housed at physically distant spaces. So are there community centers? Are there areas in the YMCA? Are there other big buildings that are being un un underutilized right now that could be repurposed temporarily for the broader good of helping us safely reopen schools? Because we're having this conversation because children deserve to learn, but the economy won't fully open until schools fully open. And if we're all in this to reopen the economy, we all need to be in this to reopen schools. I appreciate your perspective, Ms. Ng. Thank you. When someone in a school tests positive for COVID-19, what measures should be taken, Dr. Armstrong, to protect the rest of the school community? And what would be an indication that a school should not reopen or that it should close? The first answer is that you don't want to be figuring out what to do when someone tests positive at that time, when someone tests positive. Um, doing a, a good job with um, uh, mitigating um, risk at the schools requires prior planning. And so that may be how you set up the school day. One thing that is advocated is cohorting students and so that they're exposed to a small number of the same students every day and the same small number of teachers every day. So that if a student is infected or a teacher is infected, that you not only know who they were exposed to, but that it's not the entire school. And that allows you some flexibility um, for who may require quarantine or what contact tracing may be required. Um, the second thing that has to be in place in advance is um, the opportunity to both test with a reasonable turnaround time, those who may be exposed, and also to do that contact tracing, to have people in place that can do that with public health advice. Um, that, so then when you have the instance where a student tests positive or a teacher tests positive, um, you can make appropriate decisions based on the exposure, the risk of exposure, where there are unmasked moments, um, where these uh, little kids were, um, who aren't potentially able to wear masks and so on, and determine who needs to uh, stay home. 
the ill student or the ill teacher should be immediately isolated um, uh, away from others at the school and then removed from the school grounds, whether that's again to a physician's office or to home uh, while sorting out next steps. So planning is so very, very important. You ask then what are the indications for a school to reopen or to close in that setting? And I think those are gonna be individual decisions. I wanna reinforce what my colleagues have both said though, that schools should not reopen in settings where there's significant community spread, whether that's measured by the percent of positive tests, but also with um, uh, uh, in the setting where there are um, good trends in a community with 14 day trends of reductions in hospitalizations and cases and in the percent positive tests. Um, so, uh, you know, I think those are very central um, pieces to understand whether a school should reopen in addition to um, policies within the school itself that are pre-planned. And then when should a school close? I think it will again depend on how many cases are uh, arising, what percentage of the school needs to be quarantined or is exposed to individuals. So these are gonna be very individual uh, decisions that need on the ground advice from experts in each location. Excellent points, Dr. Armstrong. Dr. Tan, back to you. In addition to more frequent cleaning, are there ways to improve the safety of school buildings themselves, such as improved ventilation? There are a number of different factors that play a role in improving the safety of school buildings, and these include the school environment itself, in addition to other mitigating processes that are put in place. So besides frequent cleaning, especially of frequently touched surfaces, other measures that can be used to improve the safety of school buildings themselves include improving ventilation in classrooms by opening windows, if that's possible, by holding classes outside, if that's possible, placing HEPA filters in schools with air conditioning, and really trying to utilize other spaces, as Mrs. Ng said, so that you can actually um, socially distance the children. Frequent disinfecting of frequently touched surfaces and shared spaces and equipment need to be done, and there really should be a schedule or a protocol in place for doing this spacing desks six feet apart and having them face in the same direction, cohorting students and teachers so that students stay in the classroom and to have the teachers rotate instead of the students rotating to minimize hallway traffic is another way to basically improve the safety of school, the school environment. Stagger the classes so that they start and stop at different times. If you have to use a hallway, have the hallways go in one direction so that you reduce contact of students with other students. Keep the classroom doors open until the class starts. And basically what this does is it reduces the touching of the door handle so that you don't have potential spread of the virus. Eliminate use of lockers to reduce the need for hallway use as well as students congregating. Installation of lids on toilets to reduce the aerosol spray when the toilet is flushed is another way to try and make the school setting um, safer. Create separate lunch periods and utilize maybe classrooms or outdoor spaces for lunch if possible so that you can socially distance the students. Have hand sanitizer available throughout the school setting and have students um, sanitize their hands frequently, especially before and after they go to the bathroom and before and after they eat. In addition, masks, face coverings, face shields um, should be made available 
in case students or teachers forget to bring theirs, and closing break rooms, locker rooms, and other areas where people can congregate are all ways to make the school environment safer. The CDC actually just put on their website yesterday additional guidance on the reopening of schools, which I would encourage everyone to take a look at because it does address additional ways of trying to make the school environment safer for both the teachers and the students. Thank you, Dr. Tan. What screening techniques do you think would be most effective for students and teachers, Dr. Armstrong? You know, the immediate um, reaction that I think all of us have is to do temperature screens and symptom screens at the door for all students. And that sort of makes some intuitive sense. But when you actually look at this a little bit more deeply, it's really, really challenging. The CDC recently, as Dr. Tan mentioned, put out new guidance on their website, um, which actually did not recommend either of those measures. And there are a couple reasons for that. One is, is that um, temperature is a pretty insensitive screen for when people have COVID. Many um, present without fevers. Secondly, um, in children in particular, there are a lot of respiratory viruses that come around in the fall. And how are you going to screen and know um, that uh, someone has COVID versus a, a, a different virus? In a place with very low community spread, they may be more likely to have something else that is not as significant or as dangerous. In a place with high community spread, that may be a real indicator for um, COVID. Ultimately, I think the very best thing we can do, and we must just keep reemphasizing it, but of course it causes challenges for families, is to have the bulk of the screening be at home. That parents should not send children to school who are ill or not at their baseline. And, you know, again, that's, that's really hard for, for many working parents, but that's um, what we really need to emphasize over and over and over again as the uh, screening technique, honestly, that makes the most sense. Great points. Ms. Ng, a follow-up for you. If we rely on parents to screen their children each morning, how then do we overcome the persistent trend of parents sending sick children to school because the parents can't miss work? Unfortunately, this country has struggled with the simple reality of one of the quickest and easiest things we can do to help suppress the spread of COVID is to wear a mask. In a school setting, one of the simplest things that we can do to help suppress the spread of COVID and keep schools open is to screen honestly and not send your children to school if they demonstrate a symptom. Now, there's two ways that you could back check that. You could staff up accordingly and delay the entrance into school every day and then have the school's temperature check every morning. But that will eat into instructional time that could lead to students queuing up in bigger groups than allowable or sitting in closer proximity to each other than allowable. This honestly comes back to the adults in the community, the adults in the family acting like adults and then demonstrating, honestly, I took my child's fever. Yes, I have a major meeting. Yes, I have the shift. No, I don't have a sub, but I have to stay home. This is my accountability to my child, but also my accountability to my child's school community and my fellow citizens to not put a child who may be caring right now in that setting. But in all fairness, like both doctors Tana and Armstrong have brought up, this isn't about schools alone. This is where we start to have a conversation about what employers can do. Employers are in the economy. Employers want the economy open. Employers want their employees to come to work. Employees aren't going to be able to come to work full-time until the schools are open full-time. If you have an employee who has a school-aged child, it would be in the best interest of the economy and your company and schools staying open if you work to structure your environment such that employers not only hear lip service about but truly understand that you mean it when you say 
we need you to do your best to not only screen your child, but then keep them home. And if that employee follows suit with that policy and stays home, it cannot be to negative consequence. So this might be a conversation about more flexible work hours for shift work, having different swing shifts or flexibility to call people in or maybe over scheduling or have someone who's on call to cover for when a staff member with a school-age child has to call in. And it's the balance of empowering parents to know that they can make the right choice without having fiscal, financial, or job security consequence in schools. We are all interrelated in our ability to have a successful response. And in any moment in time, we can pivot to be even better than we are right now and start getting some traction and suppressing this. But bringing it home to your question, the answer shouldn't be that schools should have to check every child when they come in. Parents should be able to take that temperature, run that check, and keep their child home and not feel undue pressure from that. Thank you for those points, Ms. Ng. How should schools handle activities like chorus, band, and physical education, Dr. Tan? Do these activities pose an increased risk of transmission? School activities where you have many students in one place who may or may not be wearing a mask and who are unable to socially distance increases the risk for transmission of COVID-19. And this risk is further increased in those activities that involve the production of small respiratory droplets of the virus that are able to actually stay suspended in the air for longer periods of time. So when you look at those types of activities, activities such as loud talking, singing in a chorus, yelling, or playing an instrument that involves blowing. So examples would be someone who's in choir, someone who is in the band, um, cheerleading, debate team, all of these can actually produce these small respiratory droplets that hang in the air for a longer period of time and can increase the risk for transmission of COVID-19. These activities are really not recommended at this time. All team sports where there's no way to wear a mask or to physically distance and where there's physical contact should not occur. So if you think about these types of sports, it would be baseball, football, volleyball, basketball, hockey, rugby, wrestling. I mean, all these things where you cannot ensure that the person is going to wear a mask or physically distance really should not occur. And this summer, we've actually seen the impact of what happens when masking and social distancing are not enforced and when there are large gatherings of students. There have been outbreaks of COVID-19 among the students that were attending sports camps, actually forcing the closure of the camps in many areas. And this really does show that the use of masks and socially distancing measures are effective ways to slow the spread and the transmission of the virus. Thank you, Dr. Tan. Ms. Ng, can these risks be mitigated or should these activities be avoided altogether? I work for an organization that handles policy at the federal level. And so there's no way the federal government should be writing a policy like this. And the true answer here is that it is a community-based decision and when you think about the number of decisions that school districts have to make about reopening, I would assume that most are going to prioritize reopening their schools for in-person instruction and having other activities follow. This will absolutely bring up the age-old debate of, it's not just about math and English, it has to include the arts, it has to include music, it has to include phys ed, and we have to do the sports because sports are what keeps some kids in school. 
That is very, very, very true. And we need that well-rounded education. And that was a conversation we were making good inroads in during a normal time. But the pandemic has shaken this to its foundation. And the first step in stabilizing that foundation is getting schools open. I think it would be premature and naive to think that the schools can and should simultaneously re-up band and choir. I mean, I think back to some of the conversations I've heard Dr. Stan and Armstrong have about the size of the vapor vapor module. This is why I don't do, well, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but the, the, the size of the virus in the air and how long it may stay in the room varies depend on phys, depending on physical exertion. And there's more physical exertion in band and choir and debate team and phys ed than there is in literature, arts, and reading. And so if we have a given that we know that some of those activities give us higher risk, and we know that we're entering the fall, which is when we see the introduction and peak in additional viruses and respiratory illnesses, it would be well within the interest of districts to make the decision that sets them up for their better success in their top priority, which is getting and keeping schools open. Second to having schools empowered to make that decision is that we need to have a real, very real reckoning with the fact that in addition to school not looking like it did, six months ago. The very real fact is that it might be a long time before these types of extracurricular clubs and athletics and uh, arts-based things come back into play and parents need to understand and accept that reality that right now the priority is on reopening doors for schools to get in-person instruction established to ensure that we're addressing learning loss and moving students forward in their grade progression. And after we get that stabilized and achieved in a manner that is safe and secure for staff and students, then we'll have more knowledge, information, science, and data about what can be done to now mitigate risk in these more inherently risky activities. And that's a very long answer for a short summary. It would be these other non-instructionally based activities are likely to fall lower on the priority list or later in the timeline. And that is a decision that you need to trust your state and local education and health policy leaders to make and follow their lead. And if that is your priority and it's not happening now, just know that the work is happening, that you can engage and continue to push for that, but it will be further down the road. At this time, I'd like to open the floor for any final comments. Dr. Armstrong. This has been a great discussion. When we, it really comes down to it, there are three things that need to be in place for us to open schools safely, I believe. The first is transparent evidence-based plans that are available in advance and thought through in advance with the appropriate support. The second is the appropriate dollars to go to schools so that they can enact these plans and schools cannot bear the burden of this on their own. This is all expensive, what we're talking about. And the third is really being in an environment of controlled community spread. If you have those three things in place, I think schools um, can likely open successfully. And I think we have examples of that internationally that support that. On the other hand, if those are not in place, if students are, you know, even subsets of students are continually being quarantined and there's consistent investigations of positive cases and schools are debating opening and closing, this may be such a disruptive environment that we lose the benefits that we all are anxious to see of uh, in-person learning. And so I think it's really desperately important that we think about this carefully, that schools in areas of low community spread are those that consider opening that is done right. Dr. Tan, Ms. Ng, any final thoughts from you? Schools also need to have in place a contingency plan if they have to close and then reopen. 
because closing and reopening and closing and reopening can be very, very disruptive. So there has to be a backup plan in case something like that um, were to occur. But I agree that if you have all the protocols in place before school opens, this gives the school the best chance of staying open. The other thing that I think is going to be a little bit more complicated has to do with those school districts that are at a disadvantage. So there are many school districts that functions in areas of socioeconomic classes, and I think those are the kids that are at the greatest risk for really not being able to maintain in-school learning. Many of those schools, unfortunately, though, don't have the ability to provide laptops and internet access to all their students. I think there has to be some plan in place specifically for schools that function in those areas so that we don't lose those kids and they don't suffer from a lack of education. In the school setting, I would just reiterate that when superintendents are making the decisions they're making, picking off of a point mentioned by Drs. Tan and Armstrong, it isn't just about opening schools. It is about getting schools opening and being able to keep them open. A part of this conversation that we didn't touch in this podcast is that there's learning loss that needs to be addressed, but these children have lived through a trauma and stress and uncertainty, and we're going to need to address that backlog of mental health issues before we can teach the student. You have to prepare the child before you can teach the student. And the if we come into a scenario or we rush and get in there too early to open the schools and get the students at their desks, we increase the risk that we then have to shut down. And it just becomes a tumultuous cycle. And so there's absolutely something to be said for taking it slow to get it right and ensure that when we do open those doors, we're able to keep them open for the entirety of the school year, ideally. And I think that correlates to a lot of the decisions you've seen in the last two weeks alone of school districts to decide to start virtually online entirely, at least for the first quarter, so we can get better data science and information about what we know about the virus and how it spreads and what it means for students and how we can prepare staff and suppress their um, exposure and minimize their risk, but also what we might be able to know about treatment response and living in a society where we don't yet have a vaccine and how we can balance those two realities. Know that the superintendents might be going slow from your perspective, but they're going slow to get it right because the consequence could be a hot spot in your state or community. It could be increased contagion or it could even mean more death. And when it comes to issues of life and death, superintendents will always choose to fall on the side of healthy students and healthy staff. Thank you both for your perspectives. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Tan and Armstrong and Ms. Ng for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.